0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are very excited to have on Dr. Jason Davies, a professor at Buffalo, who's on today to discuss a very exciting and timely topic in neurosurgery and related fields of medicine, which is a a slew of trials that have all had their results announced at a recent meeting covering chronic subdural hematoma and the modern management of it with a relatively new intervention that we and our colleagues offer embolization of the middle meningeal artery. Um, This is really hot stuff that's really come to ground in neurosurgery and related fields in the past few years. And, and this is some of the first hard and strong data that's being publicly announced in support of this intervention. We're going to get into all of that, but first Dr. Davies, welcome to our show. Take a moment and say hello to our audience.
1: Howdy, guys. I'm very pleased to be here with you. I really look forward to being able to share some of these uh, exciting results that we've got.
2: So, Dr. Davies, why don't you first introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, Tell us who you are, where you work, how you got into this field.
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, uh, an associate professor at the University of Buffalo and a research director at the Jacobs Institute. which is sort of uh, an entrepreneurship accelerator here in Buffalo, the, the Silicon Valley of uh, neurovascular, if you will. And, um, you know, I'm a, I, I do skull base and endovascular, and I also have a joint appointment in biomedical informatics. And so um, we do a lot of work uh, trying to turn the, the uh, qualitative stuff that is uh, medicine into quantitative things that we can learn from and use machine learning and other things to do. So a lot of fun things happening up here. Now the um, neurosurgeons,
2: how- I'm sorry, the neurosurgeons know this, but the institute you're at is in Buffalo and is the, the house of Nick Hopkins or the house that Nick built. And now a lot of levy runs it. And it is really a very special place for endovascular, right? Because it has had a hand in the the, the formation the training and, uh, and sort of the creation of endovascular neurosurgery in a way, unlike any other institution, correct?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I spent 25 years in the Bay area and, and Mike, I think you're, you, you were there as well, but, um, you know, I lived on Sand Hill Road uh, during residency, and when I was post-call, I would be stumping up and down to all the VCs, trying to, um, to raise money for my next project. And um, I really thought, after I came out here for fellowship, that I would go back there because I just loved that really dynamic environment. Um, and when I came here, I was pleasantly surprised to see that, in fact, this is, although it's not, not quite the same uh, climate as uh, the Silicon Valley, um, this really is the epicenter of neurovascular. And Nick, Nick Hopkins is the one who really started that revolution. Uh, you know, way back in the day, we were clipping aneurysms and uh, doing all these things. And Nick said, I think there's got to be a better way and nobody would teach him. So he would go and spend time with the cardiologist and they taught him and really brought um, uh, about this revolution that is endovascular neurosurgery. So it's really a very exciting place. Uh, Nick is a great mentor, um, and he's really shown the way in so many uh, different aspects, how to live a great life, how to be a great mentor, how to be a caring clinician, uh, really a great mentor.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And it's funny, Bobby Stark, uh, who is, as you know, one of our endovascular specialists here in Miami, he just, I, you know, serendipitously had sent me an email, actually sent everybody an email about all these trials, the MAGIC-MT, the STEM, and of course, Embolize. And, you know, I want to start this off by providing some context for the non-neurosurgeons or even for the neurosurgeons about this this disease entity, this pathology called chronic subdurals or subacute chronic subdurals. Um, Why don't you tell us a little about why this is such an important disease and why people should care about it?
1: Yeah. So let me start by changing the nomenclature. And this is something that we're going to be seeing, I think, more of um, as ours and other publications start to come out. We're going to call these non-acute um, subdural hematomas the the acute ones these are the ones that people get when they fall and hit their head when they're uh, shoveling snow here in buffalo um, where you've got this grape jelly on the surface of the brain putting pressure on the brain uh, these are um, uh, the, the acute ones if they're causing symptoms those need surgery those need to come out but if they don't need surgery in the acute phase, and often you don't even know about them in the acute phase, they start to age. And you've got this collection of blood that is um, sandwiched between the surface of the brain and the dura, which is the sac in which the brain lives. Um, and as this starts to age, um, then, it's, then, then things start to happen. This is very common in the elderly. Um, what can happen in the elderly in particular is you have the brain shriveling up a little bit. It happens to everybody. And that puts the veins that run between the surface of the brain and the dura on stretch. And then any small little trauma or even an unperceived incident can cause those to leak and that fluid accumulates. Um, and you know this is uh, something where as the population ages and more and more folks are on anticoagulants, antiplatelets, this is becoming um, a larger problem. So much so that there was a VA study that predicted that um, subdural hematomas Uh, would become the most common uh, cranial neurosurgical condition by 2030. So really a big deal. And, you know, surgery for these things is very simple. It's something that any trainee can do. This is the first case that you do as a PGY1 or PGY2. Basically, you want to drain it. And there are a few different ways of doing that. You can um, do a craniotomy. You can do a little burr hole. You can um, uh, even do a bedside procedure. And, you know, that works well enough. But the vexing part of this Is that about twenty percent of them come back? No matter how skilled a surgeon you are, this is not a technique-driven thing. Twenty percent come back, and and that's really the problem that we're trying to solve: is how do we reduce the rates of reoperation and um, and and really um, help these people to to avoid the OR? Yeah. And
2: you know, let me just stop you there because it's very interesting, and and for people who are not initiated in this. Um, You know, when I was at Stanford, I I remember one of the very first drawings I ever saw a figure, a diagram was about chronic subdural and the pathophysiology. And for some reason, I was always fascinated by trauma and these sort of oddities rather than, you know, everybody wants to do skull base or clip aneurysms. And to me, it's like the subdural almost will take on a life of its own, like its own existence, sort of like. I don't wanna say parasitic, but it's got its own life independent of what we do to it. And as you say, it's very vexing and often annoying as a, as a method of treatment for surgeons. We, we dislike this, but I'll also add that if you go to nursing homes and there've been studies done and you indicated this with the VA study, that this is a very common problem. And I remember Marty Weiss used to say on the boards, on your, on your neurosurgery boards, chronic subdurals, and again, not acute subdurals is a proper terminology, are a great mimicry, right? In other words, people can come in and, and Grandpa's like demented a little bit, or his memory's bad, or he's losing his vision, or he's having trouble walking, or he's paralyzed on one side, and it's a chronic subdural, right? And has that been your experience as well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, these are um, these are so incredibly common, and um, you, you know, you do scans on people, and uh, you know, they you find them at, at a great frequency. Um, and, uh, you know, they, because they're so insidious, you know, especially in old folks where you have um, this capacious area between the brain and the, and, the, um, and the dura, they can just accumulate slowly over time and it takes a long time for there to be enough um, uh, of a substrate there to actually cause problems.
0: Well, this has been a phenomenal um, overview of this topic, and it's really important to set the stage for many of our listeners who are students, medical students, early in training. But now, Dr. Davies, I think we should really dive into these new data um, that strongly support this novel intervention. So there were a few trials that were announced last week. I I think for this conversation, since we have you on, we should focus on embolize. I do want to give a shout out to some of my bosses who were involved. Uh, Dr. Webster Crowley was the site PI at Rush. Uh, Dr. Josh Billingsley here at Lutheran General, where I'm working right now on our community rotation for us. Uh, but this was a, a huge trial looking at uh, this intervention with and without surgical evacuation of the blood in concert with embolization of the middle meningeal artery. We'll just start saying MMA for the rest of the conversation to make it easier. But uh, aside from that little overview, Dr. Davies, why don't you lay out for our listeners
1: uh, how this trial was designed and implemented? So let's, let's talk about um, the rationale here. So as Mike had um, alluded to, the, um, the, the issue is these subdurals take on a life of their own. They tend to form these membranes where you have um, mm-hmm. these inflammatory cells that start to invade. They have pro-angiogenic roles that cause growth of this neovasculature coming from the dura. All right. So, and that's really where the problem is because those tend to have microhemorrhages, exudates, and so forth that cause these things to continue to live on even after you've drained them. So the theory here is if you can devascularize these membranes, then maybe you can get them to dry up and the subdural to go away. And of course, the artery that feeds um, the dura from whence all this vasculature comes is the middle meningeal artery. So um, there were a number of case reports out there, small institutional studies that started to suggest that this was something that was effective, Uh, but really we lacked any level one evidence. And so um, these three trials were all born sort of concurrently and actually there are three others that that are out there. Another one just finished enrolling and another two um, that are ongoing that I'm aware of. So this is is how we designed it. So the embolized study, uh, we wanted to look at patients uh, with these non-acute subdural hematomas and um, and we essentially have two trials in one. Um, in the first arm, you've got folks who fundamentally need surgery, either because the subdural is large or the symptoms are more severe. They're hemiparetic. They um, have uh, you know a lot of mass effect. Um, if they need surgery, they go into the surgical arm, and in that arm, they are randomized one to one uh, to to either receive embolization or not. And then there's a parallel um, uh, uh, um, cohort, which is the observational cohort. These are folks who have either smaller hematomas and or less severe symptoms. And again, the folks in the observational cohort, um, they are randomized one-to-one to to receive either surgery or, um, uh, sorry, to receive embolization or nothing. Um, And what we reported in the recent ISC conference was on the surgical cohort, we are continuing to enroll in the other uh, observational cohort. Um, So really two trials in one and some of the other trials, the STEM trial and the MAGIC-MT trial, they kind of lump the two together. Um, There are some differences in it, um, but really uh, seeing some exciting results on both sides of things. And um, you know, when we were thinking about how to to design the trial, you always have to think about your endpoints. And we wanted to find a clinically meaningful endpoint, something that would really matter to the patient. And so we set it as our primary endpoint, the rate of recurrence or progression that required repeat surgical drainage within 90 days, all right? So return to OR within 90 days. Um, and that was our primary endpoint. And because we were adding an additional procedure, and of course, all procedures carry with them some risk, we also wanted to have a non-inferiority test for a deterioration of neurologic function. Were we hurting the patients by putting them through this? Um, so that was sort of our secondary clinical endpoint. And then we had a slew of safety endpoints. Of course, um, we are using something that has not been FDA approved for this purpose. So this is an IDE study. We wanted to look at the safety. Um, And then some other effectiveness endpoints looking at the imaging. Do the hematomas resolve? Um, Do we have health economic outcomes that support this, either um, reduced length of stay, reduced admissions, reduced cost, um, et cetera? So those are kind of the endpoints that we wanted to look at.
0: Very good. And so I guess Dr. Davies, the million-dollar question, and and we should say with the caveat, of course, this is pre-publication data that was presented, so it still has to go through the regular peer review process before it's formally presented in a journal. But uh, what were the findings? And in in which cohort did you find significant results? And I've heard some numbers thrown around since your presentation last week, Um, but what exactly did you see in terms of Reduction in return to OR that primary endpoint, and I think I heard a, a number needed to treat as well thrown around. So, what were the results?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, go to Twitter X if you want. Uh, the slides are all up there, right? You can't hide anymore. Um, mm-hmm. What we found is that the rate of reoperation within 90 days um, it had a threefold reduction in the embolization arm. So, mm-hmm. the the patients who did not receive um, embolization uh, recurred at about an 11% rate and those who did undergo embolization, more like four. Um, highly statistically significant. Um, and then I, I alluded to that non-inferiority test. Um, again, That was uh, we met that endpoint. Uh, there was no uh, sort of additional harm, neurologic deterioration on um, this cohort. So depending on which cohort, which, um, if you're talking about the intent to treat or the modified intent to treat population, um, we have a number needed to treat of between 12 and 14, which is, which is huge. Uh, you know, when you think about things like, uh, stroke intervention, that's a number needed to treat of four. When you're talking about, um, something like, um, uh, goal-directed care for, uh, therapy for, um, sepsis, that's a number needed to treat of, I think 25. So we're somewhere between stroke and sepsis, but highly significant. This works. That's the fundamental bottom line.
0: Phenomenal stuff. And, and so I think, um, I'd be very interested in posing this question to you because this is what I've been thinking about since we first started doing these embolizations that I've seen in residency. And now with these trials coming out, Um, if I could draw a maybe slightly tortured parallel, but somewhat of a tangential analogy to the Aruba trial, which has been the bane of neurosurgeons since its publication for years now, Um, the, the great concern with the result of that trial with AVM treatment was that Now, we're not seeing as many referrals of AVMs to neurosurgeons. There have been a a few papers that have come out looking at increased hemorrhage rate of AVMs since the publication of that trial, one of which came from Miami, where Dr. Wang is. And so I wonder if you could underscore uh, that there is still and always will be a role, not just for surgical evacuation of these in, in concert with the embolization, but the role for the neurosurgeon in the management of these mass lesions within the intracranial space? Or do you foresee, maybe not next year or even five or 10 years, do you foresee any concern that maybe other interventionalists who are not neurosurgeons by training may try to manage some of these non-acute subdurals without a neurosurgical partner? And we may see fewer of these patients that in our hands might be candidates for evacuation in concert with embolization.
1: So it's a tough question, and I've got yeah. my, my own conflicts because right now we've got, uh, we've got six fellows we, amongst them, uh, a neurologist and a cardiologist, right? So um, we definitely are in favor of training folks who are not neurosurgeons. But your point is correct. I think that you always need to be doing this with an eye towards if the patient does need surgery or if this therapy fails, how do I take care of them? So I think it always should be done um, at a place where neurosurgery is an option. Um, But I think um, we are going to be doing less surgery. And by surgery, I mean in the OR, um, you know, opening the skull. Um, And honestly, I think that's a good thing. Um, We excluded from our um, uh, trial the folks who received SEPs, the subdural evacuating portal system uh, that many of you might know, where basically it's a, just a, a bedside procedure where you put in a drain on a, with, a, with a little suction bulb. Um, but the other trials, some of the trials um, allowed that. Honestly, this is such an effective um, therapy that I think many of these patients are going to be able to be managed with a minimally invasive um, procedure times two. You do the bedside procedure in the ICU and you embolize them either before or after and you avoid that trip to the OR, you avoid that additional expense. Yes, if the patient goes bad, you gotta be able to take them, you gotta be able to, to do more, but I think the vast majority are not gonna require that.
2: So Dr. Davies, it's very interesting because with, with the ICH trial, as um, JP alluded to earlier, I thought it was a wonderful thing. I'm like, you know, anything that drives, any New England journal paper that says what we do works, and they are quite rare, drives business to neurosurgeons, because we know that we can help people. But will this set up a cycle where people are like, okay, we're going to transfer from our community hospital, this rim little thing that's not even something that requires treatment, rim subdural, whatever, to every center who has the capability to do embolization, because it's just too hard for us? Is it going to sort of elevate these non-acute subdurals to the level where it's like, you know, driving business in a certain way that could provide a lot of pain for residents. I can see the residents complaining about all these transfers, right? Um, You know, we've seen this in the past. We saw that with MPH in the 1970s, right? Things like that. Do you you think there's a potential for this sort of, not necessarily overuse, but changing the medical market a bit?
1: Um, I'm I'm sure that will happen. I I think the pushback that I would give when people call to refer these folks is you can say, hey, look, because the symptoms are not severe, we don't need to do this right now. Why don't you have them follow up with me in clinic on Tuesday and we'll take care of them, right? If, if the symptoms are severe, they need to be transferred, no doubt. Um, but if not, then we don't need to be burdening the um, ERs and the ICUs with them. We can certainly do this uh, as an outpatient. And in fact, uh, we just opened um, the first uh, ambulatory surgery center where we're doing neuro interventions in the country. And this is something that should be done on an outpatient basis these are safe easy procedures um patient comes in you do the embolization they go home bada bing bada boom uh the uh the subdural goes away and and i think that's the way this ought to be going not not massive transfers from the outside to uh, the mothership
0: well, that's really interesting, Dr. Davies, and in fact, you kind of uh, preceded my next question, which is, where are you going next with this, and what's the future of this intervention? So, doing this uh, outpatient and ambulatory setting—that that's a uh, that's really exciting, and I I will look forward to seeing how that develops and where that goes in the next few years and decades. Um, I wonder, as we've kind of got into increasing complexity in this topic as the episode has progressed, let me let me try to ask a very high-level question for you about this pathology. Um, Now that you've got this experience both in your own hands and from the trial in treating it with this novel approach, um, have you seen or been able to elucidate any pattern in which non-acute subdurals do not respond to this embolization as well? In, In what circumstances have you seen that this treatment fails?
1: So we have, um, the, the top line results from these three trials and, um, they say this works, but we don't yet understand how, why, and what circumstances, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's really the, we have a bunch of ongoing, uh, pre-planned analyses to try to dig into that. Um, but the problem, even with our trial where we had, um, 400 patients, we only had, uh, I think 29 failures total. And so the N is small, but we do have the opportunity now to be able to combine data sets. So with the Chinese trial, 722, with the STEM trial, 300, uh, now we're talking some real numbers where we're getting up to about 1500 patients. Um, and the, the Serenovas trial, again, uh, membranes uh, just completed enrollment. They're gonna be out there. We can really start to combine the data to learn. We don't know yet what, what textural um, characteristics of the subdural uh, lend itself to embolization versus not? We don't know. Do you need distal penetration? Do you need to get to um, the far reaches of the artery? Or can you just do a proximal plug? We don't know. Does it make a difference if you're using um, onyx like we did versus squid versus uh, particles? We don't know. But I'm okay with that because now we've got the data set to be able to start to answer those questions.
0: Well, that's phenomenal, Dr. Davies. So I I wonder if, again, we could speak toward the younger trainees or students in the audience. Um, And you you kind of alluded to some of these things now, but I wonder if if you look forward on a five or 10 year forecast, um, you just listed some of the questions still yet to answer. But I wonder for some of these trainees, can you point them in the direction of where to look out for some of these uh, trials that we'll be wrapping up, how they can get involved in the community of uh, cerebrovascular interventional neurosurgery or other related fields, neurology that, that go the interventional route to try and stay abreast of these developing uh,
1: trials and new interventions. So let me, let me, um, let me do it this way. I'm going to make a plug for endovascular. You know, we got into mm. this to treat aneurysms, but the truth is aneurysms are drying up, right? All the big ones have been fished out of the pond. Um, and what endovascular really is, is using the, um, the, the arteries as a highway and the veins as a highway to every part of the body. Um, endovascular is an opportunity now to um, put brain machine interface in. Um, endovascular is a way to um, do CSF diversion with the E-Shunt. Endovascular is the way to now treat subdural hematomas. Endovascular is the way of the future. And that's because we can get anywhere in the body Um, and do any number of things once we get there as the techniques and technologies continue to develop. So if you want to continue to follow this, you know, call your local um, uh, uh, neuronevascular surgeon and ask to get involved in the research, read read the journals, but um, really, um, you can even read the New York Times. Look at Tom Oxley with Synchron. Look at, um, you know, all these other, uh, you know, things that are out there. This is becoming uh, the future of neurosurgery.
2: Well, that's very well put. And that may be the biggest plug for spine surgery, I think. (laughs) So, I agree with you. Adam Arthur, my good buddy, says that it is the highway to the brain. And and I agree. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast. This is amazing work. Congratulations on your trial. I hope it gets published in a very high profile format so that everybody can read it. All the referring doctors can understand that there are new advances in this very, uh, very difficult and challenging field. So thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts and continue that amazing research.
1: My pleasure. We're coming after spine surgery next. Don't worry. Thanks, guys. (laughs) disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed
0: in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.